Geogreve, good evening, and you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. This evening, I'm delighted to be joined by Manghom Magan, writer, documentary maker, and author of Listen to the Land Speak, a journey into the wisdom of what lies beneath us. Manghom, you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. Thank you, Siobhan. Nice to be here. Manghom, your most recent book is Listen to the Land Speak, and early on in the book, you make a distinction between this and your last book, 32 Words for Field, which you say was about language, the very opposite of land, in being completely dependent on humans. It has no life beyond that which we humans bestow on it. Tell us about this move from language to landscape. It was almost a growth in my own awareness, my own consciousness. Because, do you know, I, I mean, we, we, I can be forgiven for being humocentric. It's just hard not to be, you know, obsessed with one's own viewpoint. And so when I was writing the book, I just thought this was the most important thing ever. These words that gave us a deeper understanding of our psyche, of the landscape, of our culture. But it was only when particularly during COVID, I'd be doing a lot of Zoom calls with Native American people and Indigenous people in other countries. And I would give a word like um, like Dianach, the lonesomeness of a cow bereft of her calf, or, or Dilahar, which is the total... Um, the abandonment of a piece of land by human beings and the, the sort of the emptiness that's left behind. Or Irvaruch, another word, which is the lonesomeness of Cockro at Cockro. And I would find these words gorgeous. Are the 32 words for field. I think I have 40 words for field. <laughs> but then the indigenous people would come back with me in a humble way, would say they're beautiful, and then would mention words that were had nothing to do with a human relationship to the land. They were about the land's own innate qualities. And when I just thought, like, 32 words for field, it's all about how we can exploit the land. We are farming people. So actually everything about our language is either about our own feelings or how we can exploit the land. And suddenly I took a step back. And it's interesting at the moment, particularly with the Citizens' Assembly having just come out and said, actually, Ireland should... Um, have laws, should enshrine in law the importance of the biodiversity, that nature should have its own law. And of course, we know, and again, this is something I didn't even bear to think about because we're not taught about in school. Nature has its own laws. There's natural law. You know, storms, weather, as we're seeing, nature is very, it's its own independent sovereign entity. So I was trying, I decided I'd love to try and expand my mind almost into that, into that, um, yeah, indigenous way of seeing the world. And I realised oh my golly, there's some incidents that our mythology did have this sense, did have a sense that the land was its own thing and that we were just humble minions on it. So I wanted to explore all that. Um, You also say toward the beginning of the book that Ireland is rather unusual in a European context in that the superiority of history over legend was never established. Is that what you're talking about in in pressing the mythology of the land for a, a truth or a meaning that history has maybe forgotten. Yeah, like it's always um, confused sort of maybe academics or even an objective urbanist like me when you go to the west of Ireland and you try and get a straight answer. And So let's say like even two years ago when I was collecting sea words, I was in Galway and someone said that they had looked out and they had seen High Brazil. I had seen this magical island that's off the southwest coast of Ireland and that, you know, that exists, it is believed, on the west coast of Ireland, but is only visible every seven years. So for the other seven years, it's not there. Um, now, 
genuinely, a fisherman told me to you know two years ago that he had seen it occasionally. Now, that's mystifying for us in our limited rational logical brain, but that you know the idea of there just being logic and just being the rational world wasn't something we were tied to. And again, we know if any of us have a grandparent or great grandparent or grand from outside Dublin, outside Kilkenny, outside the big cities. They would have all, like my my mum saw a leprechaun. She's sure she saw a leprechaun. So she rationally saw that. She has evidence of her own eyes, I mean, with her own eyes. She didn't take photos or anything of seeing it. Um, And it's very hard when myth is so strong, uh, you know, in a culture that myth is so strong, to equate that with then the later learned academic rational bookkeeping thing Mm. and to see how they both uh, fit into each other. So, yeah, I do believe that Ireland has managed to, to keep alive a bit of the make-believe and to not just to box it into its make-believe to believe it has merit and it has a truth of its own and one of the really uh, fascinating things about the chapter on high brazil was that having gone through the myth and uh, over centuries and the colonial explorers, you know, early cartographers going out thinking, well, we'll we'll pour a lot of money into finding this place and not finding it. Quite recently, science has shown there is actually probably something there. Yeah, exactly. Like... It's 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 hard. Yeah, I don't know. Do I even want those two worlds coming in contact with each other? They don't need to, but it's fascinating when they do. As you say, off the southwest coast is the Porcupine Bank, and if you can Google it yourself, Google Map it, go beyond the Ireland, you will see at the coordinates, um, sort of the straight southwest, where most people always said the High Brazil was, roughly in that area. You will find this high bank. You can see it on Google Maps itself. So, was there a time where the where the uh, the water level was was lower, or the ridge underneath this coral reef was higher and actually in some weather conditions would have been seen and when the water was down or otherwise when there might have been this type of mirage there can be weather conditions where an under like almost a spoon looks refracted when you put it into a glass there can be weather conditions where a piece of rock or land or raised underneath the soil can appear almost on the surface so as you said they might there might actually have been truth to it Mm-hmm. But there was truth to it. Exactly. Whether whether it existed or not, there definitely was truth for to it. Yeah. And the truths that the landscape offers are often complex, aren't they? And deeply spiritual. Yeah. I mean, I definitely know that I'm not getting my head around them yet. Um, and the more, as I said, it's so like, uh, you know, kind of earlier this year, I was with some Cree elders and they were telling me their understanding of Canada or when I'm, I'm going soon to Australia to meet with original people. And my head is exploding, but I'm realising our ancestors seem to have understood the land in this way and we need to try and expand our heads. So for me, a powerful understanding was Loch Gur. Loch Gur, a place in Limerick I'd never given any attention to. I knew that there was a stone circle there just near Bruff or Hospital, south of Limerick. And um, I went down there and I knew the rod, the stone circle was the biggest in Ireland, but still there's plenty of stone circles. And only when I started reading up on this and realised, OK, so Loch Gur, I knew the word Gur in Irish means incubation, Gur, the hen is sitting on her eggs. So you have this lake of incubation and it's always associated with, with Anya, with the goddess Anya. And just nearby is Cnoch Anya, which is the hill that is most associated with the goddess Anya. And Anya, on means brightness or shining or beauty. And she's often equated to the sun. And she's the goddess of Munster. Because, you know, the sun is coming from the south. Like, 
all of us as land workers in Ireland understood that, that, you know, the when I was going to buy land in Ireland, I wanted to buy it in the southeast. It's logical. You want to go to the, to the south where the sun arises from. And, you know, the only reason we settled here nine, ten thousand years ago was that warmth had come from the south, melted the ice sheet, and the ice sheet had retreated first up to Leinster and then to Ulster and then over to Scotland. And so everything good, everything warm came from the south. And again, after every darkness of winter, the south, the warmth comes from the south. So Anya is that warmth, is that brightness. And she's in Kilanya and then her head is sort of there and almost her belly is, is in Loch Gur because Loch Gur is the shape, it's a lake with this round hump in the centre of it. And um, it's sort of the pregnant belly. It's, she's incubating, incubating hub, basically the womb of, uh, of Anya. And again, when I knew growing up in, when spending time in Kerry, there was the Paps of Danu there, the Paps of Anya, the breasts of Anya. So suddenly you have this idea that Munster is basically a representation of the great goddess Anya. And I'm used to going out uh, in, you know, some big plain in Africa or in South America and having an indigenous people showing me the landscape that way. But to think that this tiny, overly farmed, overly roaded, overly occupied land still has this element of the the concept that the land was a goddess. Mm. It's it's mind blowing. And it's, yeah, there's so many landforms are connected. There's even Kirkarina, where again where I never knew where I spent my time um as a youth just in the summers and, and the Easter time. Kirk, in West Kerry, Kirkarina. Kirka means oats or means the seeds or the grains. So the seeds of Divna and Divinia Div is, is the goddess, Divinia or Divnia. So you have it's the seeds of Divinia. Like powerful I'll never in my lifetime be able to get the, my head around the full resonance of this, but I do sense that there's something there that would be worth all of us exploring more. And in the two examples you give, there's, as in a couple of others in the book as well, there's a strong emphasis on um, our source, or you know, what made us, our cre- creatureliness, not as a myth of Onya giving birth to humans, but as Onya as the birth giver, the holder, the incubator um, of the origin of life, of all that is, the, the, sh- the landscape and the humans within it. Yeah, yeah. So isn't, it's a, it seems to be, it's, tra- it's a birth story of the energy of existence. And that's beautiful. And that's something that when I normally have my modern Irish words that I don't get when I, and when the native people, they do have this. It's about the life energy. But like this morning, I was just writing about Ishnach, the hill of Ishnach in the Midlands of Ireland, which, um, you know, it's sort of, it it seems to have been the naval centre, the area. And again, it's not a portal. You know, when we think, Christians love the idea of caves that led into hell and that they used caves that led to Tiernanog or to the other world. Um, and that, you know, they made them into hell places. So like Loch Derg in, in Donegal, the cathedral, uh, the basilica, I think there, is built on top of the old cave that long goes away into the other world and then became a way down to hell. But Ishnach, there's no cave, there's no entranceway. It's just this stone. And the stone, Isle Namurin, the, the, the cat stone or the stone of divisions, is this nexus. It's basically the central node of the matrix of the matrix, like in, in the in the Keanu Reeves movie, that that's where all the energy came from. So it's not about they are creation stories, but not about creation stories about the human being coming out of of the first humans. Not Adam and Eve. It's so much bigger. It's about I mean the original Adam and Eve myth would have been a lot bigger too, but it's been small than just a human being giving a male and a female. This is about birth energy. It's about warmth and life and energy. And so Ishnach is still the area 
where we have where all of the energy connects connects between the firmament basically the 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 the, the, the energy of the ground of the beneath of the underworld the energy of the high heavens and the above world and the energy of this dimension all connect there and in listen to the land speak you also write about Samhain where for an, a point in the year the veil between these worlds is um it's much more porous than normal. Yeah. yeah. Imagine if we still had a strong belief. I mean, what's amazing is that Samhain and Halloween is still such a, a recognised and strong festival. But imagine if we still did really believe that it was this time with the veil. Like, all of us have lost people. All of us have had grief. And imagine if we knew... And we probably... I, I don't know. There's never You'll never rationally, but I do believe that those who have died, the spirits are in touch with us and are constantly looking out for us. But imagine we had this idea that we knew there was a time where we could really get close to them, even just once a year. And we all knew that there were other times and special times in our life where we would suddenly have a, a, a real deep connection with those we loved. But to have built into society this time, once the harvest had been finished, all the busy work was over, you had this time where you realised not only were your dead, your your the loved ones in your life, but your ancestors. And again, if you talk to any grounded people, um, you know they will. It it's their ancestors that are important, not their granddad or not their dad, who they might have had a fight with last time they met. But it's the idea of those seven generations going back. And again, I'm so far away from that concept that. It's hard for me to get my head around it. And we know our ancestors, weren't they? It was about the seven generations because it was the seven generations backward and the seven generations going forward. And that's how you made meaning in your life. You were all moving on a path. And that's why you kept your rivers pure. And that's why you kept your trees and you looked after the land. We could have have done what we're doing now. In other words, increasing agriculture to the extent that we are killing our, our... rivers with nitrates and that we that there's no longer worms left in a lot of these more intense fields we could have done that at any time not not with chemicals because we didn't have them but just by bringing more cattle but we always had the idea that there was a limit we needed to respect that land because of the the seven generations and again i I can prove that it's not just a nice eco-romantic idea there was the concept of the far midba the far midba was a young boy farmer between the age of 14 and 20 and he, he wasn't entitled to marry and he wasn't entitled to have his own cattle, but he was entitled to look after the tribe's cattle in the high bully fields, in the high um, summer fields. But he had to look after those herds and he also had to carry the cow dung from those top fields down to the valleys to fertilise those winter fields. So once he had proved that he could look after the cattle that had been loaned to him and that he could fertilise extra land that had not been, in other words, he could make or restore or regenerate more land, he was then allowed to have his own herd and his own family, his own wife. So he was, you were not allowed to expand anything unless you could show that you were um, stewarding the land in such a way that it would allow for it. Listening to you, I'm reminded of uh, the work of the African-American Willie James Jennings and particularly his book, The Christian Imagination, in which he argues that the greatest crime, if you like, the most destructive thing that colonisation did, even taking racism and all the rest of it into account, is displacing people from their land. And when you talk about you wouldn't know where to begin remembering seven generations back, well, of course, 
my understanding is that the, the, the native peoples, the indigenous communities that you're very lucky to go and visit, um, don't do that just through story or, or from having amazing oral traditions. They do it through the landscape. And if you are separated from the landscape, if you are displaced, if your land is taken off you, if you're killed, uh, generations wiped out, or if you're made move to the west of Ireland or wherever it may be, you lose the places where all those memories, all those stories, mm-hmm. um, it's, it, it's not just ritual, you know, it's, it, because ritual wasn't just like for, the, for our ancestors, wasn't the religious bit of what they did. It was all of life mm-hmm. had its own rhythm and its own practices, but in a particular place. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yet, well, I was going to say in some way we're very lucky because so many people in Ireland have managed to stay in the place. Only a fraction, you know, probably 70% have had to go to England, have had to go to America. But there's there's a lot of people in Ireland who are still living in the same place that their ancestors lived. And it's unusual, the amount that are there, or the ones, the amount that are in Belfast or Cork or Dublin or Kilkenny, who still know where their family come from and still maybe go back there uh, occasionally. So... There's a way that we haven't lost, you know, and that's the great, that's the great. But we've maybe lost the way of trusting the landscape to tell us about them. That's right, I know. And so, yeah, the great tragedy of Americans coming back is they feel really divided and we don't really help them. They're feeling an an illogical, a non-logical, a beyond logic yearning to connect to that land, the thing that you're saying that people Mm. have. And we sort of laugh at them because it's not as strong in us because we're still near enough. We're sort of three hours away. And you say... Okay, let's say then we did realise this is actually a chasm in us. We are we are poorer for it, culturally and spiritually poor. We all sense this chasm, this emptiness inside. And let's say we said, actually, if you reconnect with the land, I do definitely believe the title of that book, the land does want to speak to us. And the reason I got so excited, because during COVID, you know, we all saw people go out more. Like I live in the Midlands beside Loch Lane, a lake that no one ever swam in in winter. Like lakes are cold in winter, you don't want to. There's now... Many, many people. Probably if I go down there, you're, you're passing 20 people. And, you know, obviously along the Atlantic coast, I'm hordes, hundreds of people. But mainly women are the first who are beginning to feel this feeling. They realise during COVID, if we go out and walk or if we go and swim or if we engage with the natural world, it opens something in us. There's wonder, there's beauty. Not only there's healing in it, because you're, you're not going to find anyone who won't admit that we feel a little bit lost, a bit empty, that we don't really... What was amazing when we had such a strong Catholicism in this country was we all felt a part of something. We didn't realise how manipulative it was and how controlled we were being, but it was beautiful to feel that. Mm. In 1977, the excitement of going to Phoenix Park, Mm. and that's crumbled for so many people. And there's some Mm. people it hasn't, and we honour those, but so many people who aren't going to Mass need some Mm. connection. And belonging. Yeah, Mm. yeah. You can belong to the land if you have access to it, if Mm. you can... Use your imagination, and in writing about these themes, you're described as a as a spiritual writer. Do you see the spirituality? Do you think that's fair, first of all? And do you see that the spirituality you are holding up mm-hmm. of the landscape and the the history of language early before it is that related directly or indirectly to the Catholicism in which you were raised? Hmm. Um. First, I would admit to being a spiritual writer, and I suppose the main motive behind the 32 words, looking at the language, and then this book, Listen to the Land, Speak About the Land, is trying to trying to find a way to talk about spirit. So 
you know, in 1996, when TG Carr was set up, I had spent like maybe seven years wandering the world in India and Africa and South America. And by this stage, I was up in a cow shed in India, sort of just following my own thoughts, deeply going off into the wilderness, my own mind. And I believed that I had seen God or bliss. I believed, everything was connected. I wasn't doing drugs and I wasn't chanting and I wasn't part of any cult. I was just in the wonder of my mind. And I really wanted to share this. But So I would write these faxes home to my mum and she obviously was worried about her, her son just going around the bend. So she sent my other brother out to rescue me and my brother didn't want to come. But this was 1996 and TG Carr had just announced that it was going to start making television programmes. So he decided he'd make a travel programme with me, with his waster younger brother who was just wandering the world. And he brought a camera and a tripod out and some microphones and... Um, started filming me and I'm filming me and I was only too happy because I wanted to tell him we are all one there is God animating every leaf every bush we are all united and he just shut the camera off and said Mom, kind of like, no one wants to hear that rubbish that dirty you hippie you've got to find a way of talking of making sense so that was 1996 almost the last 20 years thought how could I talk about this idea of there being a spiritual whole which is just something I've always felt from a really young child um, and uh, so in some ways, it wasn't anything to do with Christianity in, in the way I was born with. I remember like the age of two and three being out in the garden and having this connection. But obviously, I went through a Catholic upbringing. I was a, in a Jesuit school in Dublin. Um, but a Jesuit school, Jesuits aren't really going to hammer that out one way or the other because they're so liberal. They sort of ignore you. They let you have your own thoughts one way or the other. Um, but it was really only writing the Listen to the Land Speak book that I came face to face with actually how oppressive the early Christianity had been in so many ways and closing down basically the powerful vestiges of the goddess that still were there. The idea that there was this all-encompassing, loving, female, peaceful... And of course, I'm not, I do not want to over-romanticise the, um, the early medieval or the Bronze Age or the Iron Age. They were times of violence. They were times of male dominance. But we somehow kept a sense that there was this goddess force. And... Obviously, that was going to be such an anathema to Christianity. And it seems that that's what the serpent was. The serpent wasn't just paganism. It was female goddess. It was the power. And again, when I talk to native peoples, they say like, you know, for the Cree elders, again, sex is the spiritual act. Sex is the... You, and any farmer will celebrate the sex of his, of his animals. He will see the life force coming through. He will see the absolute creation there. And we're a long way before... We, we can talk about having a nice ritual for the rising sun in the morning. But how many decades will it be before we could really start acknowledging the, the pure spiritual glory of, of sexuality in, in Ireland? Mm. You know, In all its forms. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And the... The suppression of the the old goddesses um, at the point of Christianization um, was massive, but as you say, didn't completely wipe out all trace of it. And in your book, you talk about rivers and how they retain um, names and yeah. mythologies uh, to do with pre-Christian goddesses. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing that somehow we kept that information hidden in ways, the way that, as you say, we didn't, like in the Irish names for the for the rivers, they're all female, except for one. You know, there's, obviously it's a, it's a, every word in, in Irish is either male or female. And um, so except for one, and Sula and Tulan in Cork, and maybe the foil in, uh, 
in, in, in Derry, but actually that could be to do with um, estrus. It could be a female concept too. Um, so we kept that, but not only that, that they were the female word, which is just a linguistic concept, but really we kept the names. Like the Innie River, where I am in the Midlands, is Etna, the Boyne, Boyne, the, 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 the goddess of the cow, the nourishing cow god. Shunan, the Shannon, the Shunan, this young goddess who goes in search of wisdom, of enlightenment. Um, the Ban, the Bandon, again, Bandia, these this lovely idea that, yeah, we we didn't want to hide it entirely from us. And the femininity of Wells, like Wells were still, so, you know, Christianity really tried to wipe out, uh, you know, the fire sites and the major ritual sites. But for some reason, they ignored the Wells, the Holy Wells. And they were almost, they were looked after a lot by female guardians and they were out of the way and they were hidden. Um, so... They became these more calm, more peaceful, more sort of feminine spaces. And if they were, I love that idea that are they the vulva? Are they entranceways into the goddess? Which is when you see that they're they're flowing, they're gentle, they're they're yeah. Um, I think there's something really. We're so fortunate that we, that we kept those wells, and not rarely is it just a well. It's often a well in a tree or a well in a sacred rock. It's an elemental. Exactly, purely pagan. And I, I had this great example of how that pagan faith stayed alive. About two months ago, I do this show, Iran Exim, Bread and Butter, and I brought it out to Inisir, in the, one of the Iron Islands, and I was telling them that long ago, that we used to have, if someone, um, the word deshel was a blessing. Deshel means sunwise, going the right direction of the sun. So if someone coughed, or if someone food went down the wrong way, you said deshel. And they said, that's nothing to do with Longo. We still say that today. They said, if someone sneezes, we say deal in, God be with us. Mm-hmm. But if someone coughs, you say deshel. Sunwise, may you be in orientation with this burning star at the center of the solar system. It's pure, it's pure paganism, and it's just survived in this beautiful way. Yeah. At least I think it's pagan. You know, again, an academic might come in with another rational. There's another rational reason why Deschel would have, con- but it sounds to me very like sun worshiping. Yeah. And does it? Maybe it means put the right, getting it back in the right order. You know, going. Yeah, exactly. Then, you know, that's right. So hmm. everything was done. Ilongo was done deshel. If you were winnowing grain, you did it sunwise. If you were casting hmm. a net, you did it deshel. The hmm. only thing you did tuhal, which is hmm. Witherson's anti-clockwise, is um, scything, using a scythe or a, or a sickle. Possibly because, and this is only my idea, that the grass is growing towards the sun, yes. so you cut against it maybe. Yeah. Because like, Irish Christianity it's... did keep a fair amount of this knowledge. There's always been... The enlightened priests, you know, mm-hmm. who on an Easter have brought us up to the little holy mm-hmm. site, the little, you know, um, early to Christian watch the site. the sun dance. Yeah, exactly. The sun mm-hmm. dance is a gorgeous idea. Yeah. And I mean, that is obviously, obviously another purely pagan idea, but they brought it in, in with them. Um, and so we have to be grateful first for the priests of the 19th and 20th century for allowing a lot of these bubbles through. But of course, particularly, we need to be so grateful to the monks. Without the monks, we would have virtually nothing of our culture. We would have had the oral tradition that kept alive along the Gwaeltzacht, along the West Coast. But so much of of um, our understanding of the past is now based on these manuscripts, these uh, written by monks in these scriptorium in the big monasteries. And they, you know, they took it on themselves to write down the old stories, the old laws. We're lucky that we had this weird Christianity in Ireland that kept so much of the old stuff alive. It's all so mixed and mangled up that it's hard to take out the threads, but there's a lot of beautiful concepts. And I'm hoping that there's going to be a whole new generation of people going back to the myths, particularly from a female perspective, for both us as 
uneducated people to go in and read them and tell them and share them and to intuit the knowledge and then for academics to do the, the more detailed work. Manko McGann, writer, documentary maker and author of Listen to the Land Speak. Thank you very much for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you, Siobhan. I loved it. Me too. And that's all we have time for this week. Thank you for listening. The Leap of Faith was presented by Sean Garrigan and produced by Sheila